you greetings again this morning in Jesus' name from your sister church at Harmony. It was good to be here thus far and to hear all that was shared. And maybe after you hear my message, you're going to think Tim and I were in cahoots uh, putting it all together, but that isn't the case. Uh, I will say that I feel sorry for, for the Eldon Millers, because this is two weeks in a row now they have to hear me speak. But uh, Eldon's were at our home last week, and Eldon says, you're not sharing what you shared today down at Oasis next Sunday, are you? I said, I'm not planning that way. He says, good. He said, it'd be a ditto to the message I'm sharing. <laughs> so you wait. Next week's going to be better. Brother Eldon will be back, and he can finish the other side of, of that message. Well... My heart burned within me. How about you? As we heard of Muslim people in desperation, without basic necessities, lots of felt needs, but recognizing that there's even a higher need yet. And that is something that answers the questions of life that Islam cannot answer. And when our brother said about building relationships with Muslims who are not in urgent need for years to get to that point, he was not exaggerating. We've been working with Muslim people in Pottsville for years. I butcher their sheep. I butcher their goats. I bring them produce. We do all kinds of things to relate to these people. Just, just in the last month, Abdul's son, Talal, who fled with his wife and little boy from Yemen during the Civil War, fled to Saudi Arabia. Talal's wife, who is an American citizen, and the boy were able to come directly here. So they've been here for months. So there's a young family separated. His only option was to go to Algeria, where he spent months in Algeria, again a Muslim nation, and that Muslim Brotherhood... uh, has such compassion on the refugees that they raised all the rents in the cities where the refugees are so that it's very, very expensive for Muslim refugees to stay in the Muslim country. Isn't that a sad state of affairs? They should read Nehemiah's view on that sometime, see what he had to say about that. But um, Talal, who spoke almost no English when he got here, studied English in school but had no one to speak it with. So he could hear me speak English, but he could not respond back to me in English. And so communication, I'm thinking, where are we going to go with this? So just on Thursday night, as I walked in the store, Talal was there alone. And I thought, here's my chance. It's very hard to witness to Muslims in front of other Muslims. It puts them in an extremely compromised position. Uh, Especially Yemanis. Yemanis, there's almost no Yemani Christians. There's almost none. Because their sense of family shame is so extremely high and their family connection so extremely tight that they just, they won't make that step. And so I shared a tract with Talal, who is Jesus in Arabic. I said, now Talal, you will find this one easy to read. And then I shared one, how do I find peace with God in English? And I said, and this one will challenge you to learn your English even better. But I know I can read it. Talal pulls out his phone. He says, I want to show you something. He says, I have the Anjil. On my phone. Here's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm reading it. Now, that might not mean much to you. But I'll tell you what. That makes me rejoice. 
There is hope in Pottsville for the Muslims. If a young man like that gets right with God, finds truth, and God's word does not return on him void, it just doesn't. I need to believe that because that's what it says. So, our message today is not about Muslims per se. It does happen to be about Turkey. I thought that was interesting because I had no clue that Tim was coming. I had heard vaguely that he was in Turkey, but I hadn't thought much about the fact that he might be sharing today. And the title of the message is, Where do you want to be in 40 years? Now, I'm not a young man. I don't think I'll be here in 40 years, but if I am, I'll be 93 or 94 years old, and I don't think I'll be making a lot of important decisions at that stage of life. But many of you here today are younger than me. And you as a church, as a body, I want to ask the question, where do you want to be in 40 years? I'm not a prophet, so I'm not going to tell you where you're going to be. But I am a historian, so I am going to tell you what can take place in just a 40-year period of time. And so I'd like to continue this message. You know, as a historian, I often say, what is the one thing that we learn from history? And that is that we don't learn from history. But I trust that today we can grab something and learn something from history that can help us and guide us and give us a vision and direction for the future. I give a little subtitle to my message, The Tale of Two Cities. I like to talk about two cities, and since you've already done a beautiful job of drawing a map here of my subject, I'm going to uh, just add a few things. Here's one little city. Ephesus. Laodicea. And I might not have all this exactly to, uh, to, to um, scale, but we're going to put it here anyway. And Colossae. How many of you realized when he was talking about Turkey this morning that those biblical cities, those biblical churches were located right there? I mean, you knew that. Okay, good. There's quite a few that didn't know that. I'm glad that you can now make the connection. I didn't know that Antioch was actually part of that, but that really made my heart rejoice as I think of the first basically Gentile church and where the, the center of gravity had been focused in Jerusalem in the Hebrew church, Antioch became the center of gravity of the non-Hebrew church in the early centuries of Christianity. And so as the gospel went forth from Antioch, what a blessing it would be if we could reclaim Antioch for Christ. Let's talk about these two cities. Ephesus is actually a very ancient city. From early times, it was a huge trade city. Now, I didn't draw on this map, but there's a connection here. Right here from Ephesus is a harbor, the ocean's here. And that uh, valley goes in from that harbor and goes up in here. It's called the Chiester Valley. And it has a twin valley called the Meander Valley. And the Meander Valley connects to Laodicea, almost like there'd be a ridge in between. Now, that distance between Laodicea and Ephesus is about 100 miles. The distance between Colossae and Laodicea about 10 miles. So those two were very close to each other. And there was a lot of interacting back and forth as early churches 
between all three, actually, but Colossae and Laodicea were almost like twins. From early times, this was a huge trade city. From 1000 BC already, it was a huge trade city because it had an excellent harbor. And Turkey is, as Tim well explained, the connection of the Middle East and the Far East to the European or Western world. Trade of important things like spices and rare fabrics, silk and so on, all had a funnel through Turkey to get there. And so Ephesus became an important trade city because it had a harbor and it could carry things from Ephesus across the Aegean Sea there to Greece. So from ancient times, important of trade. It was a trade route of Asia and the Middle East. The famous harbor was known as the landing place, even printed on some of their ancient coins, the landing place. They were very, very proud of, of its importance in the world. It was an important inroad. The Greeks finally settled a colony in Ephesus and uh, started to use it as a gateway or an inroad to, to forcing not only trade but Greek culture all the way into Asia Minor, which was basically a pagan territory. Not that the Greeks weren't pagan, it's just that they were civilized pagans. <laughs> and they would have called, of course, anyone who wasn't Greek-speaking barbarians. Okay, so you could say it was a barbarian country and the Greeks were going to invade it with their culture and their commerce. So establishing a colony from early times there in Ephesus. When they got there, they found that there was a huge religious center already established by the barbarians of the worship of a goddess Artemis. Now, the Greeks did what many others do. It's called synergisms. They took that religious element and they mixed it with one they already had and they came up with, of course, a huge, huge temple built there, the largest Greek temple, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This temple of Artemis, or better known as the Temple of Diana. This was a meteor that supposedly fell from heaven and, of course, obviously, uh, someone had done a lot of crafting on the meteor if it was indeed that piece. Meteors don't usually have shapes and forms like this one did. Um, I've seen some pictures of it. I won't even bother describing. But suffice it to say that this image was intended to instill the idea of fertility and Mother Nature. This was a fertility goddess with many pagan rites and even uh, orgies that were involved with the worship of the goddess Diana, a very popular religion in the ancient world. By New Testament times, the Greeks, like many other Europeans, had the bad habit of when they came into an area going up through the valley and deforesting it. Now, I am not necessarily a tree hugger, but I am going to tell you this, that when you do that to a country, you have ruined its soil. I am a sustainable agriculture promoter. But the idea is when you go into a country with steep hillsides and you take all the trees away to for lumber and timber and charcoal. Actually, they burned a lot of charcoal there, just like our people in Haiti did. Well, you soon have a problem. And the rains come and there's nothing to hold back the topsoil. 
And the topsoil comes down and fills up the valleys and you instead of having nice clear streams, you have swamps. And now these swamps, when you get your major floods, carries all this sediment down and dumps it where? Well, to wherever the water slows down, which is the bay, or in Ephesus' case, the harbor. And so already before the days of Christ, the Ephesus harbor was becoming less and less of an important place because they were having it silt shut from poor agricultural practices and forestry practices up that Kyster Valley. So, what do you do when you lose your major industry? And it's a big, big thriving city. What do you do? Well, you usually try to figure out another industry to take its place. They did the best they could, and for hundreds of years, they worked at trying to desedimentize the uh, the harbor, but without ever going back and looking at the problem or the source and doing anything about that. Today, the ancient harbor of Ephesus that's mentioned in Paul's day is seven miles inland. That's how bad it is. Seven miles. When they stopped fighting the sedimentizing and and trying to dirge out the dirt and things that were filling up their harbor... That thing just kept moving out. And so there's seven miles of reedy lowland that go out before you get to the sea today. From all the ancient, and I mean some fabulous stonework and marble streets and pillars of the ancient harbor area from Paul's time. That harbor was silting shut and that was a problem. Trade was declining for almost two centuries. As far as that goes, the big hauled ships couldn't make it in anymore. They could come in with smaller boats that were paddled, but the big sail uh, trade ships couldn't make it. So they took uh, another option, and that was, let's enhance this temple of Diana and make it more important and devise a whole tourist industry out of Ephesus. So by the time Paul got to Ephesus, their major major trade was not in selling and, and buying spices and cloth and so on. Their major trade was in tourism. Come to make your pilgrimage to the Temple of Diana. And then, of course, buy little shrines and trinkets and other things to take with you when you leave. Now, if we turn to Acts chapter 18, we can start to get some insights into Paul's experience while in Ephesus. Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to look at verses 19 through 24. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When he desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all of the disciples. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in scriptures, came to Ephesus. So now we've got a little introduction to Paul's work starting in Ephesus. He leaves. Apollos is coming there. We've learned a little bit about Apollos before. If you've read through the book of Corinthians, he was a dynamic speaker, a very able orator. Um, he is a man who knew only the baptism of John. And I found out, I guess while I was still living in Haiti, 
that for 32 years, Apollos preached only the baptism of John because that's all he knew. And when a simple couple of believers, Aquila and Priscilla, heard him speak, perceived that he didn't have the whole story, got him aside, humbly explained to him that, you know what, all that John was talking about and pointing to has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Apollos did a very, very humble thing for someone like himself to do, and that was accepted the truth. It was the right thing, but a humbling thing for a man who had preached a different message for 32 years. If you ever feel like, you know what, who am I to correct somebody else? Who am I to give them insight further than what they have? Who am I? Think about Aquila and Priscilla. They changed the whole thrust and the usefulness of that important man, Apollos, by simply clarifying the truth to him. Could you do that? Sure you could. Sure you could. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. And we'll take up reading in verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Well, praise the Lord. We, we could use a few more burnings in this country. But I'll tell you what. <clears throat> God was at work in Ephesus. And that's why I wanted to try to see here is Ephesus was no uh, little, you know, afterthought of a church. There was a major working of God, a major movement, a major revival amongst pagan people who turned to God with all their hearts. And, you know, that is one of the signs. When pagan people turn to God with all their hearts... They're digging in the ground to find those charms. They're digging around and looking in the house and up over the windowsills and they're pulling out those fetishes. They're going out in the woods where they had made an offering to some spirit and they're bringing all their stuff together and they throw it on a pile and they burn it. That's what happens when God gets a hold of the hearts of pagan people. They're finished. They're finished with that old way. They're finished with that old bondmaster that kept them in constant fear. And they want nothing to do with them anymore. That's what happens when God gets a hold of pagan people and turns their hearts upside down. Notice verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines. And here's what I wanted to point out. With all this, $50,000 worth of the devil's books getting burned, I'm going to tell you he doesn't take that sitting down. That wasn't at all what he had in mind to have happen in Ephesus. And so right down here, verse 24, we find him giving a response. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together were the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed in one accord into the theater and when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chiefs of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not whether they were come together. You catch that? Okay, I just looked at a picture this morning of this very Colosseum where they were. It's almost an amphitheater, natural, uh, like a little valley runs down in there. And they had seats. The seats, they're in bad shape, but they're still there. Stone seats. But you know what happens when a crowd gets worked up? Okay, so here's a union meeting. They were having a union meeting. The Guild of Silver Workers in Ephesus had all got together and they hear the speech. And that speech gets them roused. They get out on the streets and they're shouting and they're yelling, you know, great is Diana, the Ephesians. And all of a sudden, a whole rabble starts following them. Uh, maybe that doesn't happen in Shaperstown or Myerstown. But I'm going to tell you what, I've seen that happen in Haiti. And I'm going to guess Brother Tim's seen it in Africa. Whenever there starts to be excited shouts, I get very concerned in a place like Haiti. Because something's going to happen and it's not going to be very nice. Riots break out. And after a while, things are happening that no one can explain. One time we sat two hours to get through a traffic jam to get into poor man's market in the road down by the harbor in, in Port-au-Prince. And we barely got around the corner and the people were all yelling, no, no, go back, go back, go back. So we turned around because they said there's people throwing rocks. Well, whatever happened? We don't know. Well, we found out the next day that someone on a steamroller was trying to level the street, backed over a pedestrian by accident. It so infuriated the people that they grabbed rocks and started throwing rocks at the, at the roller, at the guy driving the roller. And as rocks went flying over it, they hit pedestrians on the other side of the street who got mad and picked up rocks and started pitching them too. And they had no clue what had taken place. And after a while, it was several blocks of people throwing rocks and nobody knew why they were throwing them. Now, that's amusing unless you're in the middle of it. It's not too amusing there. And that sitting, that was a long hour waiting to get back through that traffic jam when we knew what was going on behind us, a little bit at least. The unpredictability of some of our countries. And so verse 33 says, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with a hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. 
For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor, and that should have probably been translated temples, and it wasn't churches as we would think of them, but pagan temples, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies, let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby ye may give an account of this concourse. And when they had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly, sent them home. Well, that was probably easier than it sounds because there was only a handful that knew what they were there for in the first place. At any rate, what I'd like us to see is the turmoil between the two kingdoms that was occurring in this place called Ephesus. All right. Let's look on to chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 15. And we sailed thence and came the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible, for him to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews." And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and affliction abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. This was the last time I'm going to see you message to the elders at Ephesus. And they weren't actually at Ephesus. He didn't want to take and get on a little boat and paddle into that swamped out harbor off the big sailboat so he went past it and he called for the leaders to come and he met them there wherefore i take you to record this day that i am pure from the blood of all men for i have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of god take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the holy ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of god which he hath purchased with his own blood now take careful note to what he's about to give as a prophetic statement for i know this that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall rise men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him onto the ship. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians 1. And I want to just see that Paul's sentiment toward this church, they were a church that was strong in faith, and he wanted to keep them there. That was his goal. He wanted to encourage them in it. Ephesians 1, and I'm just going to read a few verses there. Verse 15 through 18. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Paul had commendations to give to the spiritual condition as well as encouragements to keep pressing on to this church at Ephesus. Turn with me now, if you would, to Revelations chapter 2. And I know there's lots of debates over history about when this was written. John, the revelator on Patmos, received this revelation from Jesus. I'm not here to debate it, but I'm going to say that it's roughly 40 years. And you'll get the title of my message, Where Do You Want to Be? In 40 years. Now, Ephesus had been warned in Acts about false prophets and false teachers and men that were going to arise and draw away disciples unto themselves. So they had that warning from the lips of the apostle himself, their beloved Paul. But let's see what Jesus, looking down from heaven, the resurrected Lord Jesus, who knows everything, all the motives and thoughts and intents of the hearts of men, as he looks down from heaven and he views this same church and he gives his report, his encouragement and his reproof 40 years later. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Stop and think about it. You know, this church had worked hard to make sure what Paul said could happen wouldn't happen. They had scrutinized everyone who came amongst them who tried to be a teacher. Are they false? Are they true? Are they consistent? Are they orthodox? Or are they trying to teach something new and different? And so they carefully scrutinized everyone that had come amongst them. And Jesus actually is not condemning them for that. And they had held fast. They were hardworking. They were patient But they had become dry and empty and system-oriented and lost the dynamics of the love relationship that they had had in the beginning that caused them to bring all them $50,000 or 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books out and burn them. That first generation had phased away from the scene or else had grown too old to be very influential in Ephesus. And now there was another generation who had come. And they were listening and they were trying to hold fast to what mom and dad always taught us. They were trying to do the right thing. They were trying to discern between truth and untruth, righteousness and unrighteousness, which is all good. 
but somehow they lost the point of a love relationship with Jesus Christ. There was that no more fervent desire to know Him and Him alone. It was just know about how to keep church right. Could that happen? Could that ever happen? Or did that just happen back in the first century? Jesus' words were, I have one thing against you. I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. What he says the remedy for that. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Okay, so repentance. A repentance of having lost the first love. We would look at Ephesus and say they are so much to commend about who they are and what they stood for. But we can never accept that alone as sufficient to the love relationship with Christ, can we? He calls them to repentance. Repent of lovelessness. Repent of becoming cold and indifferent. Repent of being self-satisfied. You know, we've got it together. We've got it together. The rest of the world would be pretty much right on if they did it like us. Now, that, of course, only affected first century Christians too, right? No. I'm afraid that we're made out of the same material. And we face the same challenges and temptations. Verse 6, But this thou hast, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, there's again debates about who the Nicolaitans were, but the best I can tell you is they were a group of Gnostics who tried to, again, uh, synergize, put a synergistic blend of uh, pagan teachings Greek pagan teachings with Christian teachings. And the Nicolaitans believed that since all things spiritual are good, you can't see them, all things physical are bad, that's just the nature of it, therefore I can give my body to lust and sensuality because it's bad anyway. Nothing to do about that. And then someday, spiritually, I'll be good when I'm no longer part of this body. And so they gave themselves to lasciviousness and were highly condemned by the early church. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. You know, we can look around us and find those that are living lascivious lives and professing Christianity too. We can do that. And again, we can feel good about the fact that we're holding fast. We're not doing the wrong thing like they are. You know, one of the biggest stumbling blocks I had as an unconverted young man was being able to look around and find other people who were also unconverted, but I was better than them. Better than them, does it make you right with God? Can it make you right with God? It can't. Because God's not judging you against them. He's judging you against the standard of Jesus Christ and you'll never measure up to that. So you either find his grace or be judged beside him. That doesn't sound like a hard decision. 
The Ephesians had found his grace. It is obvious. It is obvious. Paul believed that. It is obvious that they experienced it. But somewhere along the line, they had lost the fire. They had lost the zeal. They had lost their first love. And so he calls them to return to fervent love of Christ. And he gives them a promise that they can eat of the tree of life. That's interesting. One of the ancient Ephesian coins, and again with Diana being fertility, one of the ancient Ephesian coins was a a fig tree loaded with figs. She is the provider of life. Ah, but that's short-lived, isn't it? Now, I'll be 54 this year, and you know what? It's gone pretty fast. Pretty fast. And I told you, in 40 years, I don't really plan to be here. I hope not to be, but if I happen to be, okay, that's God's will. But that'll go faster yet, I have a suspicion. Those... Dates hanging on a tree or figs hanging on a tree are nothing like the tree of life. They give temporal life. But what we want is eternal life. That tree that Adam and Eve were barred from. If we will remain true and faithful, we will be permitted to eat from the tree that they didn't taste. It will be given to us. That's the promise. But if we don't repent, he is going to come and remove the candlestick. The light that we do have will be gone. 150 years into the Christian era, Ignatius wrote well of the church at Ephesus. 431 AD, there was the last known large council at the church of Ephesus. And by the Middle Ages, there wasn't a church at Ephesus. The Turks had taken it and destroyed it. And today, Ephesus, the whole city, is rubble. Now, there's a little village off somewhere, and you maybe even got there, I don't know, but a little village off somewhere that's a remnant of what's left of Ephesus. But no notable Christian church that has remained. Did they repent? It would almost appear as though not. The candlestick would appear to have been the light that they would have offered to that region of the world isn't there let's go on quickly to Laodicea I don't have as much to tell you because the scripture is not as vocal about Laodicea I can tell you some of its history it's uh, just secular history of course it was a hundred miles inland from Ephesus it did have a connection with Ephesus because of trade trade came down through to the harbor and went out from Laodicea Laodicea was not nearly as old as Ephesus It was only constructed about 250 B.C. by Antiochus II and named after his wife. That's where the name Laodicea comes from. It was a trade center on the caravan routes and it connected Syria along or with the the harbor of Ephesus. It became a military outpost, very large Roman military outpost about 133 B.C. So it too was a trade city where the military is. There's money. I'm going to tell you that right now. Uh, my wife and I were down at uh, Williamsburg for our 36th uh, wedding anniversary. That's the first time we really went away for an anniversary. Um, I highly recommend it. We, are, we, we had so much fun, we can't wait for another 36 years to roll around and we do it again. But um, that, one thing stood out to me down around Williamsburg. You've got one military base after another, including West Point, the training school, and so on. And there's money. There's money that flows. What happens is the military 
sends people to a place where there isn't anybody. And they also send salaries to that place where there isn't anybody. And all of a sudden, those people who all have salaries want to spend it. And so, uh, yeah, wherever the military goes from ancient times, this is true, there will be money there. Well, there was money in Laodicea. Um, they also were very industrious people. They had been doing genetic selection. We're not talking about genetic modification, but selective breeding for years and had developed a variety of sheep that were noted to have raven black wool. Now, if you're into dyeing or spinning or anything else, getting a true black black in natural dyeing is next to impossible. Okay, so dark brown was about the best our forefathers in colonial period could do in dyeing fibers that maintained a color. Yeah, you can put soot on something, but eventually it comes off. To make something that's truly black black, well, they had this raven black wool, shiny, sheeny black wool that they had developed by selective breeding, and they kept their flocks pretty tight. They didn't go selling them off to just anybody. And so not only did they have the sheep industry, they had the spinning industry, they had a weaving industry, and they were selling that black, black wool throughout the ancient world. So they kind of had a little monopoly on a market there that made them well-known and um, very prosperous. They also had an apothecary trade. How many know what an apothecary is? All right. They're a blender of herbs or drugs. We, uh, we separate them somehow uh, as, uh, as Brother Myron brought out, but the reality is there is no separation. Herbs are drugs, drugs are herbs. Uh, they, they, they resemble, they're, they're usually the synthetic version of something that they found in nature in herbs. So the apothecary has the art of knowing what to blend together to make a remedy. That was what they were famous for, but their fame was in one area. And that was an important area in the ancient Middle East that no one else seemed to have a clue of, and that was eye care. They had come up with a poultice, a salve that could be actually put on the eye that improved failing vision. Now, I don't know, were they dealing with particular ailments or just in general, but they were well known for that. There was a large Jewish population in that city of Laodicea. 2,000 families had been moved there by uh, one of the kings. I forget which one. It might have even been Antiochus. 2,000 families were moved out of Babylon. These were Jews that never went back. When uh, Diaspora went back to uh, Jerusalem, there were families that stayed in Babylon. So they were moved from Babylon over here and settled in Laodicea. 2,000 families and given total religious tolerance which, again, was unique in the ancient world. There just wasn't a whole lot of that available. They were independently wealthy and had become a banking center uh, in that whole central part there, or south-central part of Turkey, by the time Paul got to them. Now, we don't have a letter to the Laodiceans, but Colossae was so close that when one got a letter, many times it was passed to the next. So we're going to turn to the book of Colossians, and we'll actually find Laodicea as mentioned a time or two here, just trying to find out, was this really a solid, faithful church in the beginning? <clears throat> Colossians 2, verses 1 through 9, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen me face, my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of all the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father and of Christ, 
in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now, let's just go on here to verse 9. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And if you don't have that highlight in your Bible, do that. In Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Have him and have life. Have him and have the Father. Have him and have the Spirit. Don't have him, forget the rest. Okay, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It gives you a message to share with the Jew and to the Muslim, really. Otherwise, what's the point of evangelizing them? Okay, let's talk about it. So, they weren't far away. But I notice that Paul is commending their steadfastness and their order. So again, they were a solid church that started out that way. We don't know exactly who got it going there. It wasn't Paul, obviously. He had never seen them face to face. Turn with me to Colossians 4. Colossians 4, verse 12 through 16. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayer that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle be read among you, cause that it read also, be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So there was a, an epistle we don't have, a letter that was lost somewhere along the line, not to be confused with one that showed up later. So we didn't lose it. God knows what was important for us to have, and we have it. All I'm saying is, there was that exchange back and forth between them. There was an accountability, it would appear, between the Colossian Christians and the Laodiceans. A close interaction. Really, I'm going to say, probably not much difference in distance as there would be between Oasis and Harmony. We were just a few miles down the road. You know, we could interact with each other. We could share each other's preachers back and forth. And so, I'd like to say that I believe that Laodicean church was a faithful church. It started out on a solid foundation. It started out with probably not a lot of conflict, seeing as the Jewish element there had tolerance. There's a good chance that the Christians in the early Laodicean church did too. But turn with me now, if you would, back to Revelations chapter 3. Where do you want to be in 40 years? And where was Laodicea 40 years after the fact? What had taken place in that church? Revelations 3, beginning to read verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. What? A church that had order 
and sensibility and faith and were walking in truth and light and had uh, important individuals that were following with Paul, remembering them in their prayers every day with tears, that they not lose out, somehow lost out. Where do you want to be in 40 years? They had not grown cold like Ephesus. Ephesus had lost the fervent zeal and love of the Lord Jesus and in essence had grown cold. But they were lukewarm. And Jesus says something remarkable. I wish you were either hot or cold. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you hover somewhere in between, I find you repulsive. I want to spew you out of my mouth. That's a remarkable statement. The Jesus who is resurrected, who's glorified, who's sitting by the right hand of God, who's making intercession for believers day and night, tells a group of believers, I'd like to spew you out of my mouth. What did they do? What could have brought such a response from Jesus Christ? Well, verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Whoa. I mentioned this was a prosperous city. It was a highly prosperous city. In 60 AD, Laodicea sustained a major earthquake that almost destroyed the whole city. And when concern and compassion came from the rest of the the Greek-speaking world about rebuilding Laodicea, they refused all help. We don't need your help. We'll rebuild it ourselves. Do you catch a spirit? A spirit that ended up invading the church. That was 60 AD. Jesus is writing probably my guess, my best guess, 90. 30 years later. That spirit had invaded the church and that wealth had invaded the church. And you'll say, well, thank God we're not wealthy. Aren't we? Are we sure? Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. The definition of wealth is having more than we need to be content. Well, if we have the Bible definition of contentment being food and raiment sufficient, and we have more than that, are we not wealthy? Is there anyone here that doesn't have more than food and raiment? We're all wealthy. The spirit that invaded the church at Laodicea could just as easily invade our church if we let it. It's not inevitable, brothers, sisters. It's not inevitable that we have to be there. But it can happen because we're made of the same stuff they are. Jesus says they ought to 
get gold from him so that they could be truly rich. They thought they were rich, but you know, the riches of this world are all going to pass away. No matter how much you heap up, who cares at the end of life if your pile of ashes is bigger than mine? Who cares? And so, Jesus is saying, you have lots of that world's wealth, which doesn't count for eternity. Matter of fact, the most it may do is speak against you in the day of judgment, according to James. Why don't you come to me and have true riches? True riches. Riches of faith. Riches of love. Riches of charity. We have these things, but we have them not for ourselves. Well, why don't you come to me and I'll give you white raiment. You boast in your black raven black wool, but I'd like to give you white raiment. That is the righteousness that alone comes from me. Now you are famous and wealthy because of your eye salve that only cures physical eye ailments. Why don't you come to me and have an anointing so that you have a vision for the kingdom of God and for eternity? Stop boasting in your ointments and your mixture of herbs by the way I created for you. Every herb is for the benefit of man, according to Solomon. But let's not get high-minded. God made them all. We're only just now discovering how to use them, but he made them all and he knew how to use them back then. But he says the real problem is not your physical blindness. The real problem is your spiritual blindness. And you're so deceived that you think that you have everything you could possibly need when you don't have a relationship with me. Notice what Jesus says to this church. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Stop and think about that. Jesus says, I'm at your church door, but I'm outside. I'm not inside. And I'm knocking. And as a church, you're not even listening because you think you already have everything you need. But if any one of you individuals comes and opens the door, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to partake with you. I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. That's the promise to the one who will open the door. That's the promise to the one who will hear his voice. And so it is. You know, in history, Laodicea still had an Episcopal seat. It was ahead of the Phrygian Catholic Church at 300. But that's about the end of what we hear about Laodicea. It was destroyed by the Muslims when they invaded Turkey. 
And we have no record of an ongoing church in Laodicea. I would love to hear that there's one started. I would love to hear that there's one in Colossae and one in Ephesus. And so though we didn't put our heads together, somehow the Spirit of God is trying to give a message here. Let's think about it. We just read, we had the the history to look at these churches and where they were going to be in 40 years. We read it. It's history. But what if Jesus, that same resurrected Jesus, that same glorified Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father were to write a church to us? What if there was a letter written to the church at Harmony or a letter written to the church at Oasis? What would he have to say? Some of that speculation, I'm not going to bother going there. But I think it's good for us to think about that. We've not been at this for 40 years, have we? Are we being faithful and true? Are we maintaining an active love relationship with Christ? Are we maintaining the vision and zeal that brought us together in the first place? Do we have that hot love and desire for Jesus and for His kingdom and for His purposes? Will we hold on to the kingdom and its teachings? Now, I'm going to do something a little bit unorthodox this morning. If you're here today, and you're born again, and you're less than 30 years old, I'd like you to stand up. Okay, you're here today, you're born again, and you're less than 30 years old. Now, you know what? I love young people. I do. And you're young people. I love to see a church filled with young people. And sometimes older people will make this statement, you know what? You are the church of the future. But I don't think that's truth. If you are born again, you are the church today. You have it in your hands what will happen to this church in 40 years. It is in your hands. What will you do with it? What will Jesus write to this church in 40 years? Seeing as it's in your hands to decide. God bless you as you make wise decisions for his kingdom's sake. You may be seated. What will we do with the church of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Let's all stand together and have a word of prayer. Yes, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the church at Oasis. And may they ever be a true oasis for those who are hungering and thirsting for truth, for something like we heard of that man in Turkey And how he is struggling in a church that is becoming liberal and westernized and actually becoming repulsive to anyone who has come from the Muslim background. And Father, he knows that Islam is not the answer, but where does he go and what does he do? We pray that you would meet that man's need and may this church at Oasis ever be an oasis to genuine and true seekers. May we never come to the place where we are doing that which repulses the true seeker but rather only to encourage them in truth and in righteousness. God, help us to not grow cold and indifferent as the Ephesian church had done. Let us not be that orthodox in our thinking that we think that's enough, that we'd ever be in tune with you, we ask. Bless these brothers and sisters, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.